Welcome to Sales and Ales, a podcast about the stuff that actually goes on in sales from two regular dudes who've been doing it for a while, and plus, it's just a reason for us to drink together. I am your host, Andrew Donato, joined as always by my legendary co-host, Emil Gondos. Together, we have 30 years of sales and leadership experience that we're rolling into this podcast for you all. Our goal is to talk about the stuff that actually happens in sales and sales leadership and give you real actionable advice and content that you could try to weave into your daily life. So a quick reminder about Sales and Ales is a reason we named it this way. Each episode will feature a beverage that somehow relates to the topic we're covering. And so today's topic is all about personal excellence and standards in sales and sales leadership. And so in that spirit, we sort of came off the the beer thing today, Amol, and I chose that we sipped on a family-owned brand of tequila called Fortaleza, and I'd love to tell you a little bit about it and tell you the story if you're open to it, buddy. Yeah, love to learn a little more about what we're drinking. All right, so Fortaleza, it's a crazy story, um, but the distillery itself, Fortaleza, was started by a guy named Don Cenobio in 1873, and this guy's tequila royalty. So he was the first person to export mezcal de tequila to the United States. He was the guy that shortened the name to just tequila. It used to be a longer name. And then he was also the first to implement the use of steam to cook the agave instead of like in the earth in a pit. Uh, He was a huge tequila pioneer, but that's not even the biggest thing that this entire family did for the tequila industry, which is they actually led the way for something called denomination of origin for tequila meaning that they worked to ensure that you could only call it tequila if you made it in Mexico. One of the family members was actually in Japan and saw that a company in Japan was making tequila, got pissed. And so they led the way for that denomination of origin, which is that if you make it in Mexico, that's how you are able to call it tequila. So it's some trailblazing stuff. So here's where, where excellence comes into the picture. So they've done all this for the tequila industry. The distillery itself actually got shut down at one point. They sold the business in 1976. They actually shut down the distillery in 1968 because the business wasn't efficient enough. They they were doing it the old school way in terms of making this tequila, making it with a small brick oven, a tahona pit, some wood fermentation vats, some copper pot stills, but they just weren't making enough of the tequila to, to make any money. And so they just turned the distillery into a museum. And then- 20 years later, one of the grandsons says, we're just going to do this again. We know we have the best tequila. We know that now there's a better market for tequila. So he just, they kept the land and they kept the distillery and he just fires up the distillery again and starts making it the exact same way they were making it in the 1870s. And so now if you talk about Fortaleza, it's on the top of the tequila scene once again because of how they make it. And they were just so committed to being great. And they were so committed to really good tequila. And it didn't really matter the size of the batch. And they sustained this method through some really tough times in the world. Think about what changed between 1873 and 1999 when they fired it up again. It's just a real case of being great and being excellent at what you do and really honing your craft to now being back on top of the tequila world. So that's what we're here to talk about today. That's a pretty crazy story, right? I always love when you hear things from like way back in the day, like how did they figure this stuff out in like 1875 <laughs> or whatever you said, right? It's like kind of such a long time ago. Um, so I love that stuff and it tastes pretty good. 
you know? We'll give it a score at the end and we'll rate it for everybody. It's, it's fantastic tequila. It's the winter blend uh, Reposado. But um, that's what we're here to talk about today, which is personal excellence standards and sort of setting the bar high. We get, I think, frustrated because I think we're still part of the, the crop of individuals that wants to be better, that wants to always be great, be excellent, be at the top of the leaderboard with our teams, whatever that means to us. We've always strived for that. I wanted to talk to you about the state of the union of personal excellence and standards and sales right now. I feel like it feels like we've been taking a, a little bit of a dive in recent years, and it feels like a lost art. So I want to run some stuff past you and get your thoughts on it, and then we could have an open discussion about this. But the way that I feel about this is that more and more companies are bringing up sellers in sort of a system offense. And for those that don't follow sports or know what a system offense is, it's less about the stars on the field and more about how the system works. And a a prime example of this is the New England Patriots. Aside from Tom Brady and some of the ancillary pieces he had in his time there, it really was never about Tom Brady or any one one player. It was about how Bill Belichick operated that system for so long. Now, it helps to have the best quarterback of all time on your team. That's definitely a thing. But I feel now in sales, man, it's like every company is just trying to make everything even, everybody the same, everybody even, the leads are even, the territories are even, everything is is just homogenized, everybody has to perform at the same level. And I feel like we're missing out on that star power that we used to see on some of these teams that you and I used to be on. As I was thinking more about this, I I actually think one of the reasons this probably happens, and to your point, it's like everything's even, everything's, you know, kind of this like round robin, everyone's got to have the same of everything. What's really interesting, if you think back to when we started, like we used to pick up the phone and hand dial, right? And so I, I kind of think about while all of these sales tools we have today are, are great, um, like you don't even you don't even have to like dial phone numbers anymore. <laughs> Remember doing my first demos, you'd have to write down chicken scratch notes, and now you have things like Gong and Chorus and recording calls on Zoom and stuff. There's there's almost this attitude that it's like, and I've heard this come up actually in some interviews and, and talking to some reps where. You know, their question is like, well, what are you doing to get me to my goal or my OT? I've heard that too. I can't and believe it when I hear it. <laughs> I thought about this the other day. I don't think I posted on LinkedIn, but I was thinking about it. And it's like one of two things are going to happen in sales. You're either going to create an operating system for yourself to find success or someone at the company is going to hand you one, right? And I think a lot of people just rely on someone handing them something and they're like, okay, well, I, I did the 30 calls or the... 50 emails that you asked me to send. Right. And it's like, well, am I successful now? Right. Like, (laughs) right. Right. You said I had to make, this is a really great point. So I want to, I want to dig into two things that you said. I think you were, you were getting into an area that I think is, is sort of relevant for everyone, which is do the tools now make it so that you don't have to be great anymore. You know what I'm saying? Like the tools, so you're talking about Gong, you're talking about auto dialers, you're talking about, you know, even Clary for forecasting. Everybody has these tools that are great, but like that whole experience of writing down notes, 
that whole experience of dialing the phone on the actual horn and picking it up, right? I think that that led to some character building and, and some struggles that made you appreciate the grind a little bit more. Do you think the tools made us soft a little bit? I think that's what you were getting to. Yeah, I think in some ways. It almost creates this environment that allows people to, I guess, hide a little yep. bit. But it's more so, what are you doing with that information? Right? Yes. How are you using that to create tailored follow-up? It's almost, it, it's certainly, I think, a personal excellence thing. And I think it's almost sometimes a critical thinking piece. I was having a conversation with someone that I mentored the other day, and we were kind of talking about their pipeline and some things they're doing. And one of the key things they were missing was they couldn't explain to me or give me a rundown of their top five opportunities because they weren't keeping track of the opportunity size and they weren't keeping notes. And so it was, it was like, well, okay, you're doing the work, but you're not doing the things that are going to get you the reward. These tools give us so much information, whether it be these call recording tools like Gong or sales loft with, with you know who's opening my emails or outreach or whatever it is and we get all this feedback from these tools and i think you nailed it which is like i still have to synthesize all that information that these tools are giving me it's not enough that i just use the tool and input into the tool i still need to now use my brain to make sense of the information that these tools are giving me in order to make them work for me otherwise they're just over-glorified data collection tools, right? I mean, that's really what they are. I think the people that are going to listen to this podcast are going to appreciate candor because we're going to basically bring candor wherever we can. But here's the reality. I think the majority of people in sales, and by majority, I think 70 or 80%, I think people just don't give a shit. And I don't mean that as a knock. I mean, in terms of excellence and striving for more, I think that a lot of people would just be fine with their OTE, right? I think a lot of people would just be fine with 80% of their OTE. Yeah, it was a decent year, you know, 80% of my OTE. Ah, I didn't get to go to President's Club. That's okay. It's only a two-day trip. And and these some of these people have side gigs and side hustles. I know we do. A lot of individuals, I think, are just fine with coming in doing the work, doing exactly what is asked of them, and then getting on with their life. I think they could care less what the product is and when or if they get promoted. I think it's nice when it happens to them, but they're not feverish about when and where and how that's going to happen. They don't care about the core values of the company that they're at. None of that matters to them. Have you seen that? Because as leaders, I find it insanely difficult to try and motivate these people when I know that it's just okay. I mean, they're getting to their goals, they're doing their job, but I don't know. Have you seen this in the teams that you've led thus far? I think you you see this pretty much everywhere you go today. It's an interesting one, right? Because I think you want you always want people to strive for more and try to do more. But one counterpoint I would offer is sometimes when you have too many cooks in the kitchen, it can also be somewhat detrimental, meaning you may not need a team where everyone's 150% to their goal and going crazy. Even like a sports team, you need those those role players who are getting the job done. Yep. I think more of where you see this is when you have folks on the team who we probably don't know how committed they are. How do we lead in this environment, right? Because I, you made this point in the beginning of the segment where 
oh, well, everyone just kind of gets the same stuff, right? Yep. But I don't think that's how it's going to be going forward. I think you're going to see a shift where companies are going to say, we used to hit our number with 15 sales reps. Now we have to figure it out with seven or eight. And maybe we'll have 10 on the team, but the top 30% or 40%, they're going to get 75% of the leads that we generate or so you think SDR we're gonna shift, appointments. You think we're going to shift to an environment where companies can't afford to send their leads to people that are going to screw them up? I don't think that's going to continue happening. I guess we'll see. But I think that makes it's the most it makes the most sense too internally, right? Just reward the top people. Now you don't want to burn people out, but if you have a group of people already, you know, that show they can go above and beyond and they're capable, why not give them more at bats? Um, well that wouldn't be even. Well, it's not gonna be even. And I think that's the I think that's the new world we're heading into and it's gonna be a rude awakening for for some folks, for sure. So I, th- I think what we're getting at could lead to some tough conversations, right? Because I think the expectation nowadays, I think everybody on a sales team right now expects that they're going to be given the same quality and quantity of leads as everybody else. Your theory is, is that companies are going to correct that and say, no, 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 that's not the way it's going to work. I think probably what, like 90% of SaaS companies are pretty much marketing driven. You're going to have a marketing leader, a financial leader, your sales leader. They're all going to be looking at this. And I think one of the easiest ways for folks that are looking at a spreadsheet outside of just cutting the size of the team is going to be to say, well, how do we get more out of what we have? Because maybe they're looking across their industry at conversion rates and close rates and cost per lead and all all these numbers that we hear. If we think about the sports analogy, they want to make sure the best hitters get more bats, the best pitchers are throwing more innings, best shooters in basketball are taking more shots. I I just think that's the way we're going to see the world go for a little bit here. Yeah. Something that's been a long time coming for a lot of companies. And I hope companies get smart like this and it's not just on the role of the individual to try and be excellent. It's also on the part of the company to try and install practices and standards that that are great as well. And you and I have worked for some great companies. We've worked for some stinkers before. And I think the great companies yep. that have standards around data and quality and you know what you put into the system typically tend to be the most successful ones. So I said before that some of the people listening to this don't care if they get to 80 or 90% of their OTE. That's fine. I'm not knocking you. But there's a lot of people that are listening right now that do care. And so you may be an individual contributor that does care. You may be someone that um, constantly strives to be better. And we could point to those individuals in our career. Here's how you know that this is different. Here's how you know when someone's different is you can like point to them in your career. Like I could name names of people that I know like to be excellent and prefer to be great. You know what I'm saying? Like there's not a lot of them. But I think the question is, as a leader, if you're a leader listening to this call or an aspiring leader, what do you do in an environment where not everybody cares the same amount? I think my advice on this is I'm here to tell you directly to your face that even though your company wants you to try and make everybody care, I'm here to tell you that you can't make everybody care. The people that don't want to be great, they'll either hit their quota or they won't, and they'll be out of your hair before you can change their mind anyway. 
I think your job as a leader nowadays is to take the people that actually care about their own personal performance and helping those people realize the potential and realize the future that that offers them to be great and have standards and be excellent. I think your job on this as a sales leader on the people management side, it's to develop those stars and just manage everybody else. There's a, a book called The Sales Leader's Playbook by Nathan Jamal, where he says you should spend as a sales leader 80% of your time on the top 20% of your employees and that you actually get more of a net return results-wise focusing there versus trying to pull the bottom 80% up to be great. The question that I get a lot is how do you spot someone with high personal standards? I know we were just talking about you and I could name names. It'll take us two or three minutes, but we could probably name everybody we worked with that we know has high personal standards. And so I put together a list of some qualities that I've seen in high performers and people that have high personal standards. So let me run through this with you and you could just let me know what you think of each of one of these. One quick point I would make too on the where to spend your time. I completely agree with it. And I know people probably have differing opinions or views on what just happened at Salesforce, but Mark Benioff actually came out and said, part of the reason they're making the changes is I guess they went through a bunch of data sets and 80% of the revenue the company was generating was from like 40% of their sales team. I bet. Right? I believe it, man. So, you know, now look, they're a, they're gigantic compared to probably a lot of the companies we're working with, but each company we're working with, they're going to be a microcosm of that, right? And so you have to, as a leader and someone who's probably striving to be excellent, you, you got to allocate your time correctly. And, you know, to your point, at a certain point, folks that aren't getting it or aren't listening or aren't willing to do what's needed, you know, you can't beat a, can't beat the drum there too, too long. A hundred percent. And I want to make this point very clear because I don't want to come off calling, you know, one half or 80% of the group schmucks and the other 20% great. I'm not. It's okay. Like it is totally okay. If you want to come into work, do the bare minimum, hit your quota and leave. I think it's fine. I'm not making the point that everybody has to be wanting to get promoted and and that's fine. If you don't, you don't. If you're happy with 80% of your OTE, that's totally fine. I'm not knocking you. I'm just saying that there's sort of extra stuff that comes with having higher personal standards than the one that the company sets for you. As a leader, I think you could watch out for a few things. As an individual contributor, I think you could aspire to maybe be some of these things. But this is just from you know, 15, 16 years of experience, understanding what high performance looks like and what high standards look like. And so the first thing I have here is that the people with high sense of personal excellence constantly talk about their process. It's almost annoying how much everything is about their process. They're obsessed with operating. Every single conversation that they have starts something like, hey, so I was in my spreadsheet before and I noticed, or hey, I was in Salesforce before and I was in this report looking at my dead ops and I and I was wondering, It's oh, it always has to do with their process. It's almost impossible for them not to talk about it. Have you seen this? These people are obsessed. I think it's part probably process. And I think it's also part them applying what they're seeing to their day to day, right? They're able to easily track what they're doing and therefore they know what's leading to results and what's not leading to results, right? And so it's easy for them to spend time in 
in their high value activities. I think that's what I preach to my team a lot. At the end of the day, no one's going to care about the amount of work that you're doing. If you can make 10 calls and get to your goal, that's great. But we have to know those metrics and know what our process is so we can kind of back our way into what our operating plan is going to be moving forward. 100%. And these people typically have a lockdown understanding of what those metrics actually are for themselves. So the second thing I have is the data quality from these individuals is unmatched. Everything is where it needs to be. In fact, (laughs) I make this joke a lot. Your CRM is probably so fucked up that this person (laughs) invented some other way to do what they need to do from a metrics perspective because your half-bake, half-wax system can't handle what they need it for. And so they probably created a spreadsheet. How many top reps and people with high standards do you know that have a spreadsheet that is separate from the CRM? Give me a number. Give me a percentage. It's If, if we're talking just of like the top reps, 80, 90% of them probably do that. Is that not crazy? Right. Yeah. I mean, I love how you meant, I love how we just talked about Salesforce and now we're kind of dumping on it a bit. But yeah, I agree. It's like, you know, every company you go to, it's going to be probably wildly different. It is crazy to think, as we were talking about tools before, we have all these tools and then it's interesting, probably the people that are, that are doing the best still do things either by hand or in some Google Doc or Excel sheet outside of the company's tools. Like that's not good, right? <laughs> definitely, definitely not, it's not good. good. But for the purposes of this conversation and and how to spot somebody that has high standards, it shows you that they care enough about being great that they will not stop at the system not working for them and that they'll actually just create a whole new process or a whole new way to track their metrics. It's not good to have stuff happening outside of the CRM. We're not preaching that, but we're just saying – that 80, 90% of the highest performing reps usually have some side tracker that they've invented. Uh, it's very funny just to think about that across all the companies I work for. Um, okay, number three. This is an interesting one. Hoping for your thoughts here. Their pipeline is usually smaller, but the conversion rates out of that pipeline, especially at the later stages, are higher. And I think this is because they actually clean out opportunities that are dead. What do you think about that one? Honestly, this would probably be my number one reason why some sellers succeed and some sellers fail. And I know that sounds crazy, but I, and I'm sure everyone's heard this beat up analogy, but it's like kind of back in the days, like I guess when GPS and our phones didn't exist, And you had to print out like MapQuest or I guess like use a regular map, but you wouldn't just get in your car and start driving to somewhere that you don't know where you're going. You have the folks that kind of roll in and they're like, Hey, I got, you know, 50 opportunities for all this MRR, ARR, whatever you're tracking to. And none of it ever seems to close. Right. And it's kind of just like dragging the the dead body of pipeline (laughs) month over month, quarter over quarter. And it's at some point the conversation is just, what what are we what are we doing like what what is this because if you're just calling someone every month like hey what's happening just checking in it's not an opportunity i think the folks that are successful and either have higher close rates they probably have half the pipeline of some of what other team members might have and they're producing 
sometimes 30, 40, 50% more, you know? I look cleaning up dead opportunities. Isn't going to close more deals for you, but it's a symptom of someone who knows what they're doing. Right? Like, Totally. Because somebody cleans out their pipeline doesn't mean that they are magically going to close more sales. They could because they have a clearer vision and they can see the field better. That's totally possible. But if we're a leader and we're looking for people that have high standards, that pipeline cleanliness, especially late stage, to your point, is a hallmark of, of someone that has their shit together. If you were going to look at a metric, now we all have all these tools, right? So start using the tool. Get into the tool, get into Clary, get into Salesforce, get into Insight Squared, whatever that is, and take a look at exit percentages in the later stages. So who has deals that are moving between each stage after the initial qualification stages? And then look at win rate out of those stages. Typically, the stronger sellers, the people with higher standards for themselves, will have a higher close rate out of the later stages, right? So I would look there. Agreed. I had a, a rep on my team who would, would do this. They would have all of these opportunities and we would go through them in one-on-ones or pipeline reviews, whatever the medium was for it. And so I think there's two things there. I think one, after we close out a bunch of these dead opportunities, to your point, I don't think it's going to close more, but it's going to it's certainly going to paint a better picture of who you should be spending time with because you need that momentum. If you're just calling someone and they're like, yeah, call me back in six months. Why are we leaving that open for six months from now, right? Like, it doesn't do anyone any good. And so I think once we cleaned those up, we saw their win rate and the amount they were closing within 30 days drastically change. I think it, they went from 40, 50% to goal to like 80 to like over 100 in like 30, 60, 90 days, whatever it was. The other thing is this person uh, had a high standard of excellence for themselves. By doing that, though, they were still working those accounts. It doesn't need to be an open opportunity for you to give them a call, send an email, right? check in, be relevant with them, right? And so I'm, I'm passionate about that one. I think it's one where top sellers typically suss out the better opportunities. And I think everyone gets super obsessed. Oh, my close rate is 25%. But I bet if you looked at a middle of the road seller, they, they actually could be an excellent seller if you looked at, well, what happens when they get things to negotiation or proposal, right? They might have a better close rate from there. So when did, that's a that's a good point as well. When did people start becoming so obsessed with the close rate? Yeah, the close rate's a big one. Why? I, Nobody gets paid on I, it. Right, right. I agree. I think it's one of those things where you hear it from, you probably hear it and see it in like executive roundups yes. or- monthly meetings or you know what I mean? You're hearing someone that you probably don't directly in, interact with each day. Um, not that it's a bad thing, but you're like, oh, we, we do a QBR and my VP or CRO really cares about this, right? And so reps almost get gun shy if their close rate isn't good. But to your point, there's probably a much larger story at play than just I got 10 opportunities and I closed three of them, right? It's also like one of those numerator denominator type metrics where it's like really easy to calculate. Um, exactly. Yeah. Okay. I'm with you there. How about this one? People with high standards of excellence tend to recommend 
process improvements a lot. They'll sort of tell you what's in their way. And sometimes they'll tell you how to fix it. But then <laughs> you'll tell them most likely that you're going to talk to RevOps about fixing it. And then it'll just never get done. <laughs> what about that one? I think a lot of times folks that hold themselves to a higher standard will buy areas that are stopping them from being successful, but also do one of two things, point out a better way to do it. Or as we mentioned before, they're just going to find a way around it. Yeah. Figure it out and get it done. Right. There's like a side topic that I want to explore with you, which is what are your thoughts on sellers on teams that you've been on teams that you've led like getting involved and like doing other shit for the company, right? So we see this a lot right now where, you know, good sellers or BDRs, they want to grow, they want more opportunity, and then they'll start to get involved in this sideshow project for, for the company, right? They'll be like, oh, well, you know, I'm working on this analytics project or I'm working on onboarding people, I'm helping HR onboard people. And we see this a lot and I have some thoughts on it. What do you think about sellers where their main responsibility is revenue or pipeline generation, getting involved in side projects for the company that don't directly have to do with their role? In probably two words, uh, it's a horrible idea (laughs) Uh, because you're actively sabotaging yourself, right? And I think I want to throw in a caveat. I think everyone deserves the chance if they've proven themselves to grow and do more and contribute in a plethora of different ways. The reason why I say it's a horrible idea is because I think what happens is you have someone who probably doesn't really have like decision-making capability over their team. They have a high performer that they don't want to lose. And so they're finding these random projects for them to work on to make the individual contributor or whoever think they're kind of climbing the ladder when really all you're doing is setting them up basically to fail because we don't know if this project is important to the company or leadership. There's typically really no markers of success. And so what ends up happening is kind of this spin cycle of like, oh, well, I was working on this other thing and now I'm missing out on opportunities or I don't spend as much time there. So why is my quota still a full quota, right? It just opens up this whole can of worms that I think unless it's really high and tight on why we're doing this and what it's going to lead to outcome-wise, I, I think it's a horrible idea. Um, no, I, I generally, I agree with you. There's not much in there that I disagree with. I think it's only a good thing if A, the company knows you're doing it. So a lot of people will actually, you get this group of people that are like, well, I built this tracker for our leads that everybody can use. And it's this quant spreadsheet that this person created. And it's like amazing, but they probably spent hours on it and no one told them to do it. Like, and it's great. They're taking action to do something, but then there, then there's, like you said, there's all these expectations around like, well, my quota can't be the same because I spent 16 hours this month on the quant sheet for rating our leads. You know what I'm saying? And it's like, so the company has to know that you're doing it. Um, there needs to be results and deliverables. I think it needs to be time box. I think that an executive or somebody with decision-making authority needs to have an interest in your success, specifically in like the importance of the side project and the impact that it has. Someone's got to be watching, I think. 
Yep. And then I think it only should continue if you're making money and you're performing in your daily role. Like this is a really tough area for me because when you get into people management, this is going to come up a lot where people are going to come to you and say, I want to do more and I know we don't have a role for me. And I think it's all very noble. I think it's all it I think it's great that these people want to do that. But I think the worst thing that leaders can do is start to make these people sort of run off on these side projects, get them all distracted. And then they try to show up with the receipts and they probably did a good job, but it has no material impact on promoting them or doing anything like that. You're just trying to make them happy. You're giving them a ball to chase. And so I'd be careful about that. I've been through that before where people want to work on analytics projects or you know work with the product team. I get it, but it has to be measured in the way that I described in order for it to work. Um, but it's something that I think leadership and companies should take more probably... Uh, take it more into account, right? Because if you have someone who's a high performer in sales, or let's even say they're what we said, 80, 90, 95% most of the time. Yep. I think those are the people you want in some of these operational or support roles, right? Because they hold themselves to a high standard. They're going to hold the projects and the other people they work with to a high standard. And I, I don't think you see that sometimes in operations and sales ops and stuff like that. No, so. I, I'm, I'm with you. And I think we've entered into a time now, look, we'll use the, the word millennial. We're millennials, right? So we could say that um, yeah, sure. we're on the front edge of the millennial, but I think the, the, the millennial, you know, rep nowadays looks at themselves as something that somebody that could do more than sales when they join a sales org, right? Like how many times, have we been in interviews and we've asked like, so like, what do you aspire to be? And they're like, I want to be on product or I want to be an engineer or, you know, I'm going to school for engineering or I want to be in marketing. I've heard that so many times. In fact, when I ask people that question, like we're sitting here five years from now, what are we talking about? What are you doing? Like 60% of them don't say sales. It's just really interesting that way. I think companies need to lean into that a little bit more while still upkeeping the standards of, of getting results. Um, in the, in the day-to-day. All right, we have two more and then we can wrap this up. Sign number five of somebody with high personal standards. They actually never complain because they don't have time to. Uh, they'll give you feedback, but they're not going to be complainers. That you know, They're never going to say, my arm hurts, my leg hurts. What they'll do is they'll just leave. And like you'll, yeah. wake, <laughs> you'll wake up one morning with a one-on-one in your calendar and it'll be your top performer and they'll say, hey, listen, you know, uh, I'm just going to give my two weeks. And they're very blase about it. It's very nonchalant. And then you start to ask these questions like, yeah, well, you know, I just, you know, it's not working for me anymore. So I, I found a new job that's going to pay me more. And they're probably getting some wild base increase at some cool company. And it'll always hit you like a, a ton of bricks when it happens. But I think what we need to realize about these people is that they are relentlessly excellent, not just at their job, but they're also excellent about their lives most of the time. They make things happen for themselves. So if they're really good at this role and and being great, they're going to be great at finding a job. They're going to be great at interviewing and they're going to be great at leaving when the current role is no longer supporting their goals or where they need to go. It always, always happens this way. How many times does this happen where you've gotten that call and you're like, oh my goodness, this person's leaving. This is a disaster. Yeah, this one, I think if you're if you've done anything with frontline sales leadership, this one probably hurts the most. Everyone in that type of role probably has this scar, and it's one of those things that a lot of times the direct manager again has 
maybe no say, or as we talked about previously with a lot of sales teams operating as like a system, I think at a, lot, a lot of times we're seen as like a number and, and we're kind of replaceable. So while we as the empathetic leaders that care about the people on our team and want to see them succeed and want to get them everything we can to keep them on the team, we get kind of handcuffed. And then I, I think this is something, again, that's discounted a lot of times by leadership, but this is like one of those things that probably travels uphill, if you will, in the sense where at a certain point, now you're going to start pissing off, whether it's team leads, managers, directors, because nobody wants to sit there, spend all this time ramping people, training people, onboarding people, getting them into the into the fold and making them successful for them to leave in six or eight months. Yeah, it's uh, it's and it's always like you sort of leave work that day with like a gut punch feeling of like I can't believe this person left, and then you're like, of course I can, right? And then you're like, wait, right. wait, of course they did, right? right? They're like yeah. we made their lives yeah. infinitely more difficult with our process here. No one, I'm surprised they stayed. Then you go to the other side. You're like, I'm surprised they stayed that long. All right, last one. Sign of somebody with high personal standards. I think we ideally want to say that these folks help others. And I think in some cases they do. I think most of them don't have any time to help other people. I always get worried about this. I wanted to cover this with you because we've been in a lot of large teams. I worry about the person that's always helping others. Like as a sales leader, I'm looking out and I'm like, oh man, Bill is sitting with Dave again, right? Going through his pipeline or, you know, wow, that's two hours that Sarah spent with this person trying to get them to learn the CRM and she's always helping. I have a lot of concerns when someone always has the time to help somebody else. What do you think about that? (laughs) I also think the struggle on this one is one, if someone has that much time, you probably don't want them potentially teaching or kind of instructing what the process might be or teaching others, right? Because they may not be kind of the best person on the team to, to do that. So that's, that's where my head immediately goes like, okay, why are these two people having that conversation? And not to be, condescending or mean. And I think there should be, you know, cross collaboration amongst the team. But I think what sometimes that comes down to as well is, well, hey, we want to make sure we're getting all of our, all of our team members to the right person for this. The second thing is, a lot of times this happens, and you don't know about it. Yeah, as someone in a position of leadership, yep. right? Like, I think sometimes maybe individual contributors think in Salesforce or wherever there's like red horn that goes off and lets us know something's not working, but that's, <laughs> that's actually not the, not the case. And so things I think sometimes linger for weeks or months without you knowing because you're not getting the feedback because it's getting muffled up the chain. And so that's where I struggle because then I, you know, it's like, well, if I would have known about this six weeks ago, we could have taken care of this and we would have gotten it to RevOps or finance or whoever needs to see it to fix it. Like we shouldn't be undertaking other people's problems, right? We probably have enough <laughs> problems of our own getting to our goal. We we don't need to, we don't need to like create our own or do other people's work. So yeah, that's where my head goes on this, this topic for sure. I think that sometimes sales leaders though, get caught up. They see that behavior 
and they think, oh, well, that's my top performer, right? Or like, that's the person that I need to prop up more because they're always helping others. And I think it's sort of like a false flag. I think the ones that are actually doing things the right way don't have time to be sitting in meetings with other people. I think they're just running their day. Totally. And so I think from a leadership perspective, keep an eye on that. If you have somebody that's always, oh yeah, like I spent two hours with this person and six hours with this person. A big favorite of mine is I was doing mock demos with them, right? And it's like, right. that's fine. You want to help somebody out? I totally get it. I, I'm with it. But if you're spending an inordinate amount of your time helping somebody out, you need to funnel that up the chain. That needs to make its way to the leader, whoever that is. And that that's a failure of leadership. That's that's equal, as much of a failure of leadership as it is a misappropriation of time um, from that other individual that's always helping. So just keep an eye on that. If you're a sales leader, keep an eye on it. If you're an individual contributor, just know that it doesn't always look good when you're spending all your time helping others. I think you should help others, but I think you should be careful about that. And, and my story is, is that I used to work with two guys, one guy named Rob, one guy named JT, um, and everybody wanted their help. Like they were always being sought out for help. Like, oh, can you get a coffee with me? Can you help me with this? Help me with that. And it was almost like you had to climb the mountain to meet the swami to get time with these guys because they were so ferociously dedicated to managing their time and they sort of gated access to it. And they were extremely successful. Both of them still are. And so I just, I think that these people are a little bit more judicious with how they spend their time than others. So what we'll do is type this list up and make it available on salesandales.com as a resource for, for leaders and, and individual contributors. I want to close with this. Uh, th there is still benefit to you in your career if you try. And I think that doesn't go unnoticed. Like we've been saying this entire time, the people that truly care and the people that have high standards for themselves and are fierce about operating and meet some of these conditions that we just talked about, they get noticed, they get recognized. It's not always directly though. So for example, I can count so many times where I go to a new company and I have a very short list of people that I want to try to bring over to my new company. The people that I want to bring over are usually the people that have a high standard for themselves, right? Because I know that if I bring them in, they're going to learn, they're going to learn fast, and they're going to get up to speed quickly. And so I just think, and I don't know what you think about this, I just think that there's still something to trying hard and there's still something to being great and striving to be great and excellent at your job, even if the benefits aren't completely immediate. I think certainly in sales, and I know we've probably been guilty of this, but you're right, that immediate payoff might not always happen. And I think the other thing that helps you or keeps you going in sales, you, you have to have that ability to say, look, I showed up, I put forth my best effort. Maybe it worked out, maybe it didn't work out, but that's kind of what keeps you going. I'll take someone with discipline over motivation. I forget the exact saying, right? But it's because that discipline is what gets you up the next day to keep going. Or maybe you had a bad month, now it's the first, the scoreboards reset to zero, you know, what do you, what do you do, right? How do you respond? I think, you know, not everything you're going to do is going to result in some type of recognition or financial incentive in sales. Sometimes you got to just do the, the basics, do the fundamentals so that you're, you're out on the field and you're, you're making the plays when it, when it's time to do it. So yeah, 
I think yeah. I think that everybody should strive to be a person that is on that short list that people remember. Right? Like strive to be yeah. that person of someone that is a no-brainer to get a call back or a call up when somebody starts a new job and needs to build their team or when your leader leaves and goes somewhere else, somebody that they want to bring over. That's how it happens. So I would strive to be that person that has high standards. And then it doesn't matter where you go. You're going to be great no matter what. We will upload this list of qualities to salesandales.com. It's our new website. You can check that out. There'll be what we're calling content companions for each episode. So be sure to check those out. And subscribe to our newsletter. We're going to do a newsletter too. It's not going to come out for a few months, but just enter your email on our site. We'll capture that information and send you relevant stuff that we think is beneficial to salespeople and sales leaders along the way. Lots of interesting stuff coming up. We have some special guests that are planned. We have some other topics that we want to get through. I guess we should take a sip of this tequila and, and rate it. Let's take a sip here and let the people know what, yeah. uh, know what we think. <sighs> mm. That's good. Nice. Smooth. That's good. <laughs> Got to be like a 9.3, I think, on that. I was going to say 9.4. Yeah. Fortaleza. They don't miss... We're drinking the Reposado Winter Blend. That is just fantastic. I want another one of these. This is this is really great. Yeah. An excellent tequila. Talking about excellence. We will catch you next time on Sales and Ales. Until then, talk to you soon. <laughs>